I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I'm so excited uh, to be here with Kathleen. I've loved her work ever since I read uh, Findings and Sightlines. Um, one of the great things, I think, the special things about when a poet decides to, to write prose is that you know you are in the hands of someone who knows how to edit and has a concision and has weighed the words, not spraying them at you. You get the sense of someone who's really thought about the weight and, and the power of what she's saying. And those two collections of essays... I found incredibly refreshing because they didn't separate in, in the way that many na- nature writers seem to do. They didn't separate the animal or the uh, uh, plant world or the uh, geographical world from the, the, the species that most, has most affected all of those things. And, and they don't deny that, um, that effect. Um, specifically, I, I, I found... I was almost shocked, actually, when you wrote that essay, I think it's in Findings, where you go into a, 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 to start discussing cancer uh-huh. as a kind of natural historical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, don't, I would like, if you, before we get into Sophie, would you like to talk about maybe that, what has, what, what's brought you to Sophie? Because there's a very specific way of writing, which I don't think is paralleled by any other writing. Well, that's very kind of you to say so. And, and um, I think... I did a long apprenticeship as a poet, as yeah. you say. I was yeah. writing, publishing poems for 20 years before at the age of 40. I thought, I wonder if I can turn my hand to prose. And it was the, it was the diary section in the LRB, I must say, that, that I always turned to first. And I, thought, I kept thinking, I like that, I like that, I like that length. And uh, one day I thought, well, I'll just try writing in prose to, to that length and see what happens. And it all, you know, I started... From there, but it's, it's the the poet's things. I think of the, the, these essays as being extended poems, not not shrunken novels. You know, and um, yeah, that's that's why the way that developed became tied up with many aspects of your life and the way you react to the environment you are in, the environment yeah, you are yeah, visiting. Yeah, it's a really stupid question, but is there a different kind of satisfaction? 
creative satisfaction in creating a poem which is very I'm interested in yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then this thing which is, you know, sprawls maybe compared to a poem. Is there a different satisfaction? Mm. The satisfaction of finishing a piece of work is the same, I think. Yeah. That, 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 yeah. that late Friday afternoon feeling, thinking, it's yeah. done. Yeah. You know, no, that, yeah. that's the same. Yeah. I, I, think, I think I thought, when I began trying to write essays, maybe there's something I can do which is easier than writing poems. Mm. I'll try writing essays. <laughs> Wrong again. You know, it's, it's, mm. They may be longer, but they're, they're, they may be a bit looser, but they're no more easy, mm. you know. So there still is, still is considered, but um, and I also thought I need something to fill those long gaps when I'm not writing poems and the muse mm. is just buggered off, you know. Mm. And I need I need something to turn my hand to, mm. and it is slightly easier to to be at work on an essay to mm. sit at my desk at nine in the morning and work straight through until oh half past nine and and you know <laughs> doing that, but I can't do that with a poem. No, no. Yeah, I embarked on it thinking it might be simpler and more lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> so to that end, I mean, the, the trouble is it isn't lucrative, is it? Because you decide to go off. <laughs> My publisher's <laughs> Sorry. Well, I mean, in one way, but I mean, I don't know how long it's taken to create, to have the life experience that's been put between these two hardcovers here. Oh, okay. Because it's, you know, it's not... One never gets the impression with your work that you have set off on a mission to colour in by numbers. You know, you don't go off to a place or no, no, put yourself in a situation. I tell you, I, I do put myself in situations, but what I find I cannot do is think of a theme. Mm. You know, sit in my own room and think, I know, I'll go and research. Exactly. Give me a theme. Think mm. of anything. You know, trees mm. and, and run around the world thinking, visiting every kind of tree mm. and doing all that, quote, research. Mm. In fact, for a long while I had a sign above my desk saying, don't research encounter. You know, so, and mm. I had to let it accrue. Mm. This book and, and the other two books, I didn't know what they were until they had accrued enough. There's a deep enough pile mm. to become a book. Mm. And only then could you look back at it and think, oh, oh, that's what that's about, you know? Absolutely. So yeah. it was all done, realising what I'd done was done in hindsight. Yeah. It would be so much easier if I could just set off and follow yeah, a theme, sure, you know, sure. like a little it's dog following a scent, you know? It's much more work, isn't it? It's much harder work, I think, to do it There's the way you do it. There's more longers, yeah. you know, more time sitting, to doing nothing because you don't know what's going to come yeah, next, you yeah. know? It would be easier, or I think yeah. it would be easier yeah. to have something yeah. to chase, Yeah. You know? And yet the appeal, I think, of these three books is their their doingness. It's, you know, the, the, the doingness. The, yes, the finding, the sighting, the surfacing. Okay, they're all they're all yes. Right. There's not a sense of stasis. There's not a sense of sitting there. You know, like John Ruskin used to go and sit on the shore of Lake Coniston and watch the water for like all day. I can do that. Which is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can, but. One doesn't feel that that's what the kind of dynamic of this right. is. There's something that moves you on. I think specifically that this book, yeah. that sense of movement. Can you just maybe talk to a little bit about how this book came about? Well, uh, how it came about, I finished the previous book, mm. Sightlines, and I went into that zombie, empty place that I think must be familiar to all writers. When you just stare at the wall for like two years or watch daytime TV and it's just nothing, nothing is happening. And you think it's finished, you know, it's over. I'm a washed up ex-writer. And then some tiny thing just catches your attention. And I think you have to be open-minded to it because one thing is true. 
whatever's going to come next is not coming from the same source as the last one. You know, so there's no point in going to that cupboard because that cupboard's bare. Yeah. You know, so you just have to wait until some little thing. And in this case, I was just poking around museums, as is my want, looking at Inuit articles, which I'm very fond of. And I, thank God, a, a young curator came up to me and said, are you interested in these? You know? And I said, yes, I think they're beautiful. And she said, well, I know somebody you should meet. And it turned out to be the director of the dig who was working in Alaska. And one thing led to another. I went to Alaska and watched in this dig. And, you know, so just a chance. You know, that young curator, Jenny Downs, just thinking like a blind date, she should meet him. Yeah. Pure luck. And it's interesting because the, the way the book launches into that world is really classic Kathleen Jamie territory because it's, it's archaeological, yeah. but you are there, and it starts to become anthropological, but then it starts to become something else. Can, we just, can you just actually set up that, that just, because that's the first, it's not the first piece in the book, no. but it's the thing that establishes the tone of the book. If you don't know the book, and why should you, I, I went to work in an archaeological site on the farthermost edge of Alaska, where the land is literally falling into the sea. The tundra is falling into the sea because the sea levels are rising and clawing away at the earth. And there, on that patch of beach, people were finding ancient artefacts. They knew that if they went to this part of the beach, they'd find on the shore ancient artefacts, things from hundreds of years ago when they were a healthy hunter-gatherer community. And they, these things were being washed away and they were being lost. So, long story short, they called in archaeologists who found a, a village which had been buried by the tundra. Out of this, this archaeological site came these exquisite artefacts, which literally you could take them out of the earth, wash them off a bit, take them back to the modern village and say, here's your past. You thought it was lost. The missionaries came, the colonists came, they told you you were idiot savages. But here it is, it's all back again, you know. It's hugely moving, it's hugely moving. And as a result of having these artefacts come back into their lives, their contemporary people are rediscovering their mother confidence, their cultural confidence, their resilience, which God knows they need now, and how to manufacture these things again, you know. It's, it's hugely moving. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to witness, even in the extent I did, you know. Because you are there as the permaf permafrost is melting. The permafrost is melting, you know, so it's loosening its grip on the land. Therefore, mm. the land's falling mm. to the sea. The sea's rising there faster than anywhere else in the world. Mm. You know, so the land's... Mm. They're having to move the entire village inland. Yeah. You know, things are falling away so fast. It, lovely phrase, the sea pouring at this wall of tundra. Mm. And you talk about the artefacts coming out of the frozen earth like charms in a Christmas cake. It's just so, because the texture of the earth is so mm. soft and it's not mm. frozen, it just mm. falls away. Mm. Mm. And there they have these like, beautiful, beautiful objects, of course, all made of, of natural yeah. materials because mm. that's what people had. Mm. Yeah. And objects charged with belief and narrative and, and, and power of the natural world in the way that Inuit articles are... I, I, this. Earlier this winter, I was um, shown an Inuit mask of a, a carved, carved out of walrus ivory, mm. which was a mask which, when you put it on, you could see through the walrus's yes, eyes. Yes, yes, yes. So you became a walrus. You became a walrus, yeah. yeah. Mm. So what does that do to your psyche? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> these, these people, the men wore um, plugs in their cheeks, which are often carved with seal faces. So you'd be half man, half seal, like mm. a like a mm. selkie, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah. And mm. that relationship with the natural world, you know, is is fascinating, mm. isn't mm. it? 
because you are hunting these animals, you are eating them, you are destroying them yeah. in ways that we, in our pious yeah. Yeah. manner now, would go, oh no, you mustn't, no. No, mustn't no. stab a walrus, no, no, no. That, you know, yeah. nobody's closer to no. them than they are. No. And what I really like about the way you're placed in that part of the story, in that sort of opening section really, is that you are, as you say, coming at a subject sideways. So you're you actually don't really have a role there in a way, do you? <laughs> you know, there's the archaeologists there, yeah. there's the people who are hunting there, and the, and the way, and then suddenly the people start waving you in the in the street, yeah. and and it's quite interesting, such as the street is there. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and that, that that that's what's really interesting about this collection that, that there's real much more human coming in through the here. I there's think, more people now. in it than there's in more previous people. books. Yeah, you know? yeah. And somebody else had to point that out to me. I hadn't noticed. No. <laughs> yes, there are a lot of people in it. Yeah. <laughs> and especially when there are people who have this really, uh, it's so far from us now, we can't really understand. What you, there's a great word where you're talking about it's, it's, it's still, an, it's still an, a, an ancient culture. It's almost Paleolithic yes. culture. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so it's only, only very recently be contaminated by the modern world. Well, contaminated is, is a word I wouldn't find, no, but tell you the truth I, would, I wouldn't use. It, just, <laughs> it is, is what it is. But yeah. it, it, is, it is extraordinary. You have hunter-gatherers who stop by in the supermarket on the way home, same as we yeah. live into Tesco's, yeah. you know. And, and what, walking that line, living that, that, that line, that's, I find that fascinating, yeah. you know. Yeah. I couldn't, I, I'm not a pure nature writer because, you know. That's what it's I find really good. not as interesting no. as where, where that collision exactly. and collusion takes place in exactly. culture and nature. Um, can I read a wee bit from yeah, this? I was just asking to ask I'll read a tiny piece. So we are in the edge of the Bering Sea, way, way far west, as far west as you can go before you start coming home again. And the people are Yupik. I hadn't heard of Yupik people before. Inuit, yes, Inupiaq, yes, but I'd never heard of Yupik people. And... Um, of course, they were fascinated. Well, not all. Some were very interested in, in the archaeological dig. There was one elder who was particularly interested in the dig. The name he used was John Smith. John was a youthful 68 or 70, small of stature. Like most of the men, he usually wore thick-checked lumberjack shirts and workman's jeans. His greying hair was loosely slicked back. He'd often drop by of an evening to see the day's finds, especially any pieces in walrus ivory because he himself was a carver. John was valued for his presence, his link to the Yupik language, his stories. He spoke slowly, as if weighing every word, but that seemed to be the Yupik way. Think first, speak slowly. He spoke also with his hands, gesturing, sometimes mimicking. He could mimic a bird with his hands. One day the excitement was an earring that had been found on site, carved of walrus ivory. It was a flat platelet, about a centimetre square, with two smaller pendant circles, a bit like owl eyes. The platelet itself had been carved with a dot amid concentric circles. John took the earring into his hand, turned it, scrutinised it. How old is this? he asked. Five hundred years? How'd they do that, without metal? Make those perfect circles? He looked around at us and said with reverence, What kind of people were they? Your kind of people, John. We'd often hear John make remarks of wonderment and of sadness for the culture which was past. There are no Eskimos anymore, he'd say, all gone. John could remember sealskin-covered kayaks on the river, all gone now, and dog teams and dog sleds. Now everyone uses outboard engines and snow machines, too much noise. 
Do you know how to travel by dog sled? We asked. Yeah, I know. He nodded, paused. You need seven dogs, smart ones. They'll find their own way home. He made a motion with his hands, exactly like the paws of a running dog. It's so beautiful, that, that whole section, because you're, you're, you're really talking about time. Because you're looking at time, frozen, but then melting. Yeah. And the fluidity of time, the time that you represent, the time that their culture represents. Um, and your observance of it is just so extraordinary. There's a bit where you go, they, you go salmon fishing. They go salmon fishing, which is, it's not salmon fishing. I mean, that no, sounds no, almost like, like, no, sounds no, like, like no. a sort of hobby, but no. it's an entirely different thing. And no. it's, can you just talk a little bit about that sequence? Because just about how that, that, that hunt to me, it's... Cause the, you become, the, the salmon mm, run um, yeah. up the rivers there in, in late August, early September. And, you know, if you come from this country, and I live in the River Tay, and salmon fishing means a couple of extremely wealthy men in waders up to their necks, you know. <laughs> but, but there, the, 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 you could walk across the river on the backs of these salmon. There's so many fish. And the people have to take as many as they need for the whole winter. So everybody in the village is suddenly fishing salmon in boats and angling, so-called. You just think, I'll have that one. And it comes, yeah. you know. So we went shooting up river and we boats and every so often stopped to fish some salmon, which is either smoked or preserved in some way to last them the winter. But it was just extraordinary to see the whole village going, salmon! Yeah. That we go, yeah. you know, and, yeah. the, and they yeah. are still there. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. they're having a wee bit of trouble now, but there's so many still there. You have a <laughs> wonderful description of looking down and seeing salmon like silk slashes in a Tudor sleeve. That's uh, a, particular, a particular kind that are red, and when they broach the surface, you just get this yeah. flash of red. Yeah. yeah. But when they come out, they were just disgusting because you know they, they rot before they die. Right. Yeah. Oh, they're just vile. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I caught a trout. Did you? And did you eat the trout? No, I didn't eat the trout. In, in that culture, um, if you, the first fish you catch, you must give to an elder. So my trout was ceremoniously given to an old lady. And what was wonderful, I think, about the book is where you get given names, don't you? Oh, yeah. Um, I, what was your name? I, I don't know. No, I just no. It flashed over. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't, I didn't want to badger the people by saying, what did you just say? Yeah. You know. uh, it's so wonderful. And then there's the way they resolve conflict when there's a conflict between two sort of tribes or families, they resolve it by taking one of the enemy's names. Well, apparently this, this village that we're talking about was abandoned because there was a war. Um, mm. You know, mm. you wouldn't think these people would have wars, but it looks like it's you know, ubiquitous. Mm. And eventually, after however long of conflict, they, they made moves to, to resolve. And one of the things they did was, was bind the two warring factions mm. by naming. Mm. You know, if a baby mm. was born in one faction, it took the name of somebody who'd recently died in the other faction and, and bound themselves Isn't that together. Wonderful, yeah. Can it's you imagine fantastic. that happening here now? I know. Well, I mean, I was what just name thinking, would you not call your baby? I know, I know, I know, I know. But how did you find your presence within them? I mean, it, it, it's it like, was, you know... What you observe, you destroy. I mean, what you observe, you affect, you know, I mean... Yes, but the, the season is so short, mm. you know, the, the archaeology season just became another thing in the seasonal round. Right, there was salmon okay. fishing, there mm. was archaeology, there was moose hunting. I mm. mean, it mm. just slotted in there. Mm. Um, so I couldn't say. I no. wasn't there long enough no. to, to, to really get a handle mm. on that. And, mm. Mm. Those people that were interested were interested and the rest just could, yeah. you know, leave, us, yeah. leave it alone. Yeah. But it's interesting, isn't it, that you have to have outsiders come in and show you your culture or, or 
Oddly, yes. Uh-huh. Although they were invited in. They were invited yeah. in, yeah. Some of those people who understood what they were losing, mm. what was literally mm. being washed away, mm. Mm. Uh, had to plead with the mm. elders who'd run mm. everything, quite rightly, yeah. um, to say, we, we, need, we need to not mm. have this mm. destroyed. So the elders had to give their blessing to allow the archaeologists to come in and do the mm. thing. So it was all carefully negotiated yeah. before... Yeah. Archaeologists, archaeologists didn't just arrive. No. A lot of negotiating negotiation went on within mm, the culture mm, before they even mm, were approached. Mm, mm. Yeah. Because a lot of those items are shamanistic, aren't they? And they have quite powerful... I believe they have a powerful... And like you're not meant to, you know, like a hunter's kit, which might be like polar bear teeth and sort of strange bits of feather and things. It, it, that's meant to be destroyed as soon as that hunter has the, the, died. I, and the, I understand that the ritual masks that, that mm, the men use mm, in, in, in ceremonial dances mm, were, were destroyed afterwards. Yeah, so yeah. you'd only ever find half a mask. Yeah. There's a sense of the way you're looking at looking at these things what you take away from this is a great phrase a glimpse is all we have in this life isn't that true isn't that true it's really you wonderful to be 100 no, yeah. you know. and it's just like, like that yep that's the way of it I find it interesting always because I think archaeology has come up I think all three books has yeah, it I think absolutely. you know um, where does that come from in your story in my teens I just, yeah. I just um, became interested in where, where I lived in the outskirts of Edinburgh, where I grew up, I could look at the maps and speak to our local historians and understand there were standing stones and chambered cairns and things I could cycle off to visit. And I just loved doing it. I just loved it. You know, here I was in my wimpy scheme, built, you know, 30 years before. And within two, three miles, there were, so say, chambered cairns, you know. Yeah. There were 5,000 years Incredible. ago. Yeah. Incredible. And I wanted to be an archaeologist. Yeah. So I gave it serious thought yeah. when I was young. Yeah. Uh, but for various reasons, didn't. But it's never gone away. So I'll is this w- a way of becoming an archaeologist yeah, by one remove? Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't have to exactly. be crawling around in a field all the time. Just you are always crawling around in fields, <laughs> and that's what you. you uh, it's a it's a it's a natural state for you. The the section Notland Notland is really. Ent- I don't know whether you wanted to read about, but um, that's where you move back through time again, and these people mm-hmm. living on the edge of time. Because this is closer to home, isn't it? This, this and geographically, culture. yes. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah. We're, we're in the Orkney Islands, yeah, so, so it's, yeah, no, it is yeah, close to home, but yeah. more remote in time mm. because this is. I, I think time is not linear. I think it swirls around. Mm. Yupik culture, which was only 500 years old, were hunter-gatherers. They were Paleolithic, but people on Orkney were Neolithic and they were living 500 mm. year, 5,000 years before, mm. although hunter-gathering predates the Neolithic. If you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So hunter-gathering managed to cling on in places where you couldn't grow nothing, yeah. you know, like yeah. in the Arctic. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, on Orkney, they had discovered, um, again, it's climate change that exposed this a mm-hmm. series of mm-hmm. awful high winds that obliterated some old sand dunes. Beneath the sand dunes, they, they discovered Bronze Age and Neolithic um, homesteads and farms. Mm-hmm. Has anybody ever been to Scarabray or heard of Scarabray? It's Scarabray all over again, you know. And they're still working on it. And this time they say they're going to get it right. So, so we have, um, right again in the seashore, little homesteads, little houses emerging through the earth, each with its archaeologist working away on it. Each of the small Neolithic houses was the property, so to speak, of one archaeologist. There was Maeve's house, Dawn's house, Emily's house and Leslie's. Each knew her own intimately as she worked round and down, excavating and planning. One day, keen to make more sense of the site, I walked around having a word with each householder. The same phrases recurred. To see how this relates, 
to find out what's going on. Then this can come out. This house is early in the sequence. We're getting new kinds of flint. New meaning older. Dawn Gooney was working on a house in the middle of the enclosure. She's an expert in bone and had been working on the site for several seasons. Today she was drawing an inner corner by the entrance to her house where it was obvious, even to me, that alterations had taken place. The doorway was clearly defined in stone three or four courses high, with sharp corners because the original building had been almost cruciform. But someone had taken a notion to fill in the corners, so making the inner space more rounded. This more recent Neolithic stonework wasn't up to the standard of the original. You could tell where one ended and the other began. Having drawn it and photographed it thoroughly, Dawn would soon begin to take out the amendment and reveal the sharper original stonework behind. I like this kind of thing, she said, kneeling on the ground, a black band keeping her hair out of her eyes. I'm practical-minded myself, and I like seeing someone else's mind at work, having these same thoughts thousands of years ago. It's as if the daughter-in-law moved in and wanted to put her stamp on it. Let's get rid of these gloomy corners. <laughs> it's so beautiful, that action. And um, there's a point where you describe this strange um, accumulation of cattle skulls, which yeah. is sort of inexplicable. It's inexplicable, but not uncommon. No. Apparently loads of Neolithic sites have got cattle skulls um, worked, embedded in the stonework. And, and one of the things you say about that is that what well, you're talking to the artist is that their animals have biographies. That's yes, it was pointed out to me that they were so um, attuned with their herds. They loved, they loved their cattle. Mm, mm. They loved their cattle. Yeah. And they would have known them all by name. Yeah. You know? yeah. So in so that sense, each animal had a biography. Yeah. So each of these anonymous skulls would have been well known to, you know, well, that's, that's Daisy's skull and it's, yeah. you know, walked it's a, into the wall. It's funny, I was in, I was in Dartmoor. I just came back from Dartmoor this morning. And yesterday we came across a remote part of Dartmoor, um, sheep, uh, Cheviot sheep being driven off in a herd from, from the moor to come down for a rest, mm-hmm. for a rest. They weren't mm-hmm. being, going to slaughter. And this, this shepherd, who I thought he was going to be really grumpy, he talked with such passion of each individual. Oh, nice. And these sheep were standing there, you know, like, say, you know, like kind of looking at us, saying, yeah, you know. And they just think it's just, it really, you know, and I, you know, I said, how old are they? He said, oh, some five, seven mm-hmm. years old. They weren't, you know, they were having good lives, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. The proximity of the animal to the human. You would never be important. far away from them or no, the smell of them, would no, you? No, no, no. But wouldn't you love to know what a Neolithic person called their cattle? What yeah, names they gave yeah, them? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And I think the other great section in, in this section, Notland, um, is this sense of what really comes out is the certainty and uncertainty. The certainty of science and the uncertainty of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're there, the kind of the mediator, you're... Mm, Trying to negotiate all that in a way. Do you know what I'm allowed to? You know, yeah. I'm allowed to, no matter if I'm talking to an archaeologist or, or a pathologist, any of the scientists, that they can only go so far, yeah. and then they stop themselves. Exactly. They can't make emotional statements and they can't speculate. But I can. Exactly. You know, so. It's a great freedom. And I like so. to think I'm enabling that. Yeah. You know, because sometimes it frustrates the scientists that they can't cross that line. But they need someone to speak to them, for them. And, and, anyway. and I need to, as a writer, I need to uh, pay respect to what they're telling Absolutely. us. You know? yeah. So I do think mm. there is a connective mm. tissue that, that mm. you know, writers mm. like ourselves mm. can, can become mm. between the hard sciences and, and yeah. you know, yeah. the rest of yeah. human ways of being. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because there is a strange sort of crossover where they're moving into culture, trying to 
ascertain what this culture is. Mm. So how do you make the judgments about that culture if, you're not, if you don't speak aesthetically or emotionally about it? Well, I think, I, think um, I don't know if there's any archaeologists in the room, but I think mm. archaeology must be unique in, yeah. in, in yeah. having to yeah. make imaginative leaps, but not too far. Yeah. You know? yeah, they keep reining themselves back. You know? It's interesting. And I keep yeah. saying, well, it's only speculation, yeah. and it's only yeah. speculation, yeah. but... Yeah. You know? And because they are digging up people. Sometimes. Often, certain, the remains yeah. of and things around them. Things around them. Do you have any more from that section you wanted to read? Because uh, uh, one thing that, that really comes out really strongly at this point is that is the way your energy focuses or your attention focuses on an object. And the most powerful object in this section is the West Ray wife. Yes. I mean, I don't know. You might not be ready. Maybe just talk about it because it's, it's such a charged object. Um, do, people, do people know what the West Ray wife is? She's a little tiny figurine she's that was found in yeah, there she is in the back, and she was found on this site um, and had been looked as though she wasn't lost, but had been deliberately placed. They seem to be in the habit of not abandoning buildings but ritually closing them, <clears throat> and it seems that this little little female figurine had been placed to close something down. And she is the oldest human representation we have in. in these islands, apparently. <clears throat> there she is. So there's not much to her. She's not like the, those, no. you know, those, those Paleolithic no. Venuses. And no, 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 and that, no, you know? no. That's all there is to her. But she's very yeah. small and very yeah. potent. And, and she's, she, she's now in the Westry Museum. And like the other figures you find, like the whalebone figures and <laughs> things, they, it, it, I was, when I was reading it, I was thinking, I was thinking of the monolith in 2001. The kind of, you know, what that represents is sort of a, another culture. <laughs> and then in the next page, you're off on Voyager, the right. space probe, aren't you? Right. You talk, yeah. and, and you know, that's a lovely thing because you think of some Voyager space probe goes, is it actually, I can't remember the bit, is, it, is there some, an object on Voyager? Do you imagine it being like. Well, you know how they send things off? Yeah. You know, say if some distant intelligence encounters this thing, they'll know us by these objects. And I was thinking, what object would you, you put on? a spacecraft that was going out to the farthermost reaches of the universe, mm -hmm. you know. And I figured, of all the stuff that came out of Links of Notland, I'd put in one of the stone plowshares, yeah. you know, saying, this, this is what we were, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and you imagine the aliens are asking, was your world once wild? It's <laughs> <That's> very <laughs> sad. <laughs> yeah. Very sad. Yeah. The other thing that comes out here as well, um, where you, you'll think about time, you describe time as a spiral, which is interesting, dynamic. And also you say, accumulations make me anxious. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not a hoarder. Yeah. Yeah. So and you're getting all these wonderful objects, but don't you, don't you, don't you want yeah, to put them no, in the pocket? No, I don't. You I don't? Just, no. Um, there is on Westry, near the site, a great big shed full of Neolithic stuff. Mm. What do you do with it? <laughs> I know. I, I live with a person who is a bit of a hoarder, and I, 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 he's not here, thank God. So I can tell you, I sneak things out at two in the morning when he can't catch me. You know. No, you can't dispose of that. Yes, I can. No, no I, don't, I don't like too much stuff yeah. around me. You know. yeah. And when it's precious stuff, even mm. more. Mm. Is that because you, you don't want to be overwhelmed yeah. by stuff? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because they clutter your mind. Yes. Yeah. yeah and, exactly. and my house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Exactly. We do have this extraordinary move into the east, which is quite interesting because we go to and is it Lahaza? I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Um, 
Yeah. This book is full of strange names. It's very, the Inuit names are very difficult for someone that has never heard them being pronounced. No, me too. I've forgotten how to pronounce Um, them myself. You do move from the West to the East. The the title surfacing applies to to things surfacing out of memory as Mm. well as out of the earth. Mm. And there's a section of memoir Mm. about a a youthful adventure Mm. that I had in my mid-twenties when I went or or tried to go to Tibet Mm. but failed to go into Tibet Mm. because it was 1989 Mm. and and, um, Mm. everywhere in China was strike-bound and and there was an awful problem. So we were holed up for a little while in a hotel in a strange wee Tibetan town. And then... then we met some lovely students, art students, and they were there. They were just being young and students, and they were making art. They were drawing and painting, and, and you know, and, and it took me 30 years to go around to writing this piece because I had to become older in order to look back and see them and see ourselves as young <coughs> and that's what's yeah. really powerful about this book because it's really moving through your life, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's backwards and forwards, yeah. but because that, I've, what I should have really said that what's prefacing that is is the actual se- se- sequence surfacing, mm-hmm. in which we talk about. Is this is your mum. That's and, my mum and my my nana, no. mother and daughter. Um, yeah. And the way you evoke family memoir is in a very powerful way, which is not like the way memoir is often evoked in these books is um well it's short i didn't i didn't yeah. want to do too much no. you know but uh, no, but you but know it, the, the it, two pieces that you're talking about the one the one sent to Beth and the yeah. one about my my yeah. gut they, they, they both took many 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 years to write not That's not in the sense that i no. slaved over them but i had to wait and wait and wait yeah decades yeah. you know yeah. before i thought yeah. now's the moment Mm. No. So the Why kind of the spiral of t- spiral of time, the fluidity of t- 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 fluidity of time is coming home to you. Well, is, is that did those pieces? Had you already written the the Inuit material? Is not Inuit? Inuit? I think so. Because um, in the book, it's a very natural segue. It's partly because of the beauty of your writing, Thank the, you. the very, economy of your writing. I can't quite remember. I think so. I, I think one somehow led on to the other. Mm. But as I said at the start, it wasn't until they were all done, mm. I could look back and go, oh, my goodness, they're all about things surfacing. Yeah, you know? yeah. So yeah. I didn't set out with that intention. Yeah. It, it, it's things rising to the surface, like the bones, like the, the Christmas cake charms. Rising to the coming surface. Out, coming yeah. out of your memory. And this mm. is why you can't do that thing that writers are so often expected to do, which is write a proposal, mm. you know, say, I'm going to do this and this and this. And you just don't know. No. No, no, exactly. You just have to be sort of aware, like you have this radar in your Mm. mind Mm. which can pick up absolutely nothing for years Mm. on end Mm. and then something starts Mm. to blip Mm. on it, Mm. you know. You've opened yourself up to something, basically. Yeah, you have to be very open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As Rilke said of Holderlin, you have to be so open. Yeah, yeah. And the section in Tibet becomes quite shocking in in quite a low-key way. Maybe I shouldn't really spoil it for people, but... um, Oh, well, it was 1989. Yeah, uh, I think everyone know what that thing is, but mm-hmm. it, it's um, and that sense of what a culture can do to a remote culture, which is far away from Beijing. What was happening in Beijing? Mm-hmm. Um, and the way you experienced that. Um, well, we experienced it as people who had absolutely no language, you know. Mm-hmm. So what we were mm-hmm. hearing was, was literally mm-hmm. Chinese whispers, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. no internet, no Twitter, no nothing. Yeah. We just had to wait. Mm-hmm. 
mm. unbeknownst to us mm. until the news of what was happening in Beijing, mm. you know, filtered mm. through mm. to where we mm. were, mm. you know, and it was literally rumour. Yeah. yeah, you talk about um, being without language, we were as babies ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a strange thing to be without, you can't read, can't speak, can't, nothing, mm. just completely without language, mm. except for a very few Westerners mm. who were hanging about, mm. you know, mm. strange. There's parts in the book where you start to talk sort of in the third person where you talk about you, as in yourself, you mm-hmm. are doing this. So mm-hmm. there's a sense of we're looking at you, mm-hmm. you're looking at you, mm-hmm. uh, uh, at these things happening to the you. Mm-hmm. Do you do that through sympathy, through affection or distance? What's that? Speaking in second person. Mm. I do it for the sake of variety, yeah. mm. you know, because... Um, one thing I absolutely can't bear is too much I, I, mm. I, 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 I. Mm. So it gives us um, a break mm. from constant mm. first person. Mm. And I also find it not distancing, I find it more intimate, mm. you know, mm-hmm. oddly mm-hmm. enough. Mm. So that it, it, it opens up with the very first line is, you're sheltering in a cave, mm. thinking about the Ice Age, mm. which is, of course, myself, mm. you know. Mm. But, um, yeah, I find an intimacy, mm. just for short sections with mm. the second person mm. that I can't, I am sitting in a cave. Mm. No, it ain't mm. right. Mm. I think I wrote that in first person and then thought, it's just ain't right, ain't mm. right, and changed it into second. Just it's interesting just... because a lot of nature writing is about writing in the first person because it's how I have experienced that I am here and yeah. I am yeah. doing these things. Yeah. Yeah. And you find a, a bit of a slight discomfort with well, that. Do you know what you can do? It's yeah. easy. Um, any word process, processing program now will give you a find and search function. Right. Just set it up to search for every instance of an eye. Yeah. Every time it flashes in the screen. Yeah. English grammar is so <laughs> wonderfully malleable, you can change it. Yeah. You know, so you just yeah. get rid of a third of every instance yeah. of eye and, you know, it works. <laughs> yeah. There's a trade secret for you. Do, do you recommend that to your students? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. The other thing, our mutual friend Tim D, um, uh, who's a great nature writer I'm sure you know um, he, t- he came down to speak to my students at the University of Southampton he had a great um, uh, little trick which was to write something and then take out the last paragraph and the first paragraph mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and see what floats mm-hmm, free mm-hmm. that seemed to be a very Kathleen Jamie thing to oh, do oh yeah I really. do that all the time yeah. 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 And, and recommend it to students yes yeah. the first paragraph you're sort of priming the pump coughing clearing your throat and the last one you're just sort of mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I don't know what mm-hmm. you're doing but it oughtn't yeah. to be there yeah. you know yeah. Yeah. And the other great thing that you do, which is because it's your humour that comes out, you throw in little phrases like, if seals could watch Netflix, they would. What don't you think? Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, suddenly you have this there. And it's not, it's not even anthropomorphic. It's just like, it's just funny, you know, and it's, uh, which is what happens in the book. Is there something else we can read? Hey, I'm thinking about uh, the, the, the book, um, like the other two books. Mm. My own life is written through them. You know, I started writing essays when my kids were small and having small children, instead of hiding it away, I sort of integrated it into the book. And then this one, the kids are growing up and my, my parents are, my mum died a while ago, my father died just last year. And being at that stage in life, having to look after my dad for a wee while and then his passing, feeding that also into the work rather than, rather than extracting it you know mm. is important mm. to me because mm. I think it's all also to do with time mm. I think this time is my great obsession mm. actually mm. and how our human lives have a shape and an arc which I'm now detecting because I'm 
in my 50s, I'm beginning to detect the shape of a human life. Yeah. You can't do that when you're 20. Yeah. You have to be this yeah. age to do that. Yeah. And you can see how, if I'm spared, how it's going to unfold. And that's pinned against the greater arcs of time, which yeah. take us from you know, the Neolithic to when this went. And that's important to me. Because all the people we're dealing with in these archaeological sites, their own mortal lives are pinned against that greater reach of time. As are ours, we'll pass and go as well. You know, so, so that um, is ever-present in my mind that this is the stage of life I'm at now. It's not what it was 20 years ago. It won't be 20 years here, you know. But the business of becoming an elder, which when you have no parents left, you suddenly are on the front line, you know. And that, that was thinking about, about that when my dad died last year. Let me do a couple of, Please. just a page about, about that. A line, incidentally, I couldn't have written had I not spent all those weeks in Alaska. <coughs> Under the plastic lid, a tundra landscape, as seen from the air. Blooms of bottle green, circlets of paler green, of fawn. Dad, I said, you can't eat this. Why in God's name won't you keep it in the fridge? My father is shrinking. He leans on a stick. Why don't you eat them when we bring them on the same day? Down the toilet went several small, once nutritious portions. We're good daughters, my sister and me, trying to be. We've taken to bringing around food because we insist a daily bowl of soup and the innards of a white roll is not enough. My dad's bungalow is comfortable. He can afford, we can afford to keep it heated. He's been widowed for a decade and before that he was the chief carer for my mother following her stroke. Hence the move to within a couple of miles of me and my then young family. We weren't going anywhere, not then, so my parents moved close. Friends say it's a good arrangement, not having to do state visits, not having to drive half roads across the country every weekend. Round the corner, out of sight, I text my sister at Dad's, just chucked all that food we brought, try not to book. Later, I confess I shouted at him, Dad, what are we to do? And he snapped back, just leave me to my own devices. On the Friday, two friends arrived to collect me. We're going north for a long weekend. They are both older than me, retired and skilled and competent hillwalkers. I think they're glamorous. One of their chief hill sports is to receive the slightly patronising comments of men, then turn the conversation to reveal they've both done all the Monroes and even climbed Himalayan peaks. Both were wooded quite young for very different reasons. Into the car go boots, ice axe, walking poles and myself bearing another small dish of mashed potato. Can we stop at my father's so I can nip in? Of course, they say. One of the two recently lost her own mother, who'd been very elderly and confused. So, so it's pinning my own life and that against the greater it's shape the, of things. It's the real richness of this book, which even more than the others in a way, has that, has that distance and that closeness, mm. the two things combined. That's really the way your writing works. Right, thank you. I think that's I need, why I need other saying, people to tell me. Yeah, 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 no, I, I know. It's always the thing. You yeah. need someone to come in. Yeah. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm going to open up because there's one last thing I'd like you to read. And maybe okay. if we have open up to questions now okay. and then have that last okay. reading, do you mind? No, because no, that's, that that's would be a nice yeah. thing to mm-hmm. end on. So... Can I ask anyone, please, to um, come in with something to contribute, perhaps? Hello. I wanted to ask if you do still have time for poetry or um, well, in between the essays. So the question is, has poetry got time for me? It seems, to, it seems <laughs> to have wandered off the last few years. You know, I haven't written a poem for quite some time. But there's pieces in, in this book which are only a page long, so I'm pleased to think that might be where the poetry's gone. I wish it would come back. I miss it. Catherine, thanks for all you've uh, related. Um, the front line, you're on the front line now. What's it like? Could Because, I say that because, as we probably know, if we don't, we probably should, is that uh, our children watch us more than, they, than we watch them. And um, I just wonder, what's it like being on the front line? Well, when... Um my dad died an Irish friend, so the Irish have a phrase saying that, that no, no, there's nothing between you and the wind, you know, <laughs> which is a, it's a bit like that. But also I like it. I like, I like this phase that I'm going into. Every decade, I think, I've gone into thinking, oh, God, you know, now I'm 30, now I'm 40, now I'm 50. And they've all been brilliantly interesting <laughs> so far, yeah, <laughs> in very unexpected ways. So, yeah. I just wanted to ask about the different lengths of your pieces <laughs> and what it was like to write... Because you write, some of the pieces are really very short. I mean, they're immensely large in the thoughts that they engender <laughs> in the reader, but they're very short pieces, and then there are long, much longer pieces. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us a bit about those different lengths and how you felt writing? I think it, the length thing was a, a challenge to myself. Um, the longest piece in this this book is a hundred pages which I hadn't written anything so long, and I wanted to just to challenge myself to see if I could handle that much length of material and keep myself interested. Because um, if I'm not interested, the reader's not going to be. So it was formally for myself. I wanted to give myself a wee challenge. And uh, the single two pages ones, sometimes that's just the length the thing is. Mm-hmm. And it may, be, it may be experience, and it may be the poet's experience of, of knowing that. Because you think... I need to write something long because it has to fit in the book and yada yada. And that sometimes you think, no, I can do that in two pages, mm. you know. Mm. And it, you have to be, I suppose, maybe a bit brave, mm. you know, and knock it back to what it really needs to be. Mm. And then you think, I'm never going to write a book at this rate. Mm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I like finding a, finding a, the length of a thing is such an integral part of writing it. Yeah. 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 And as I say, if it's only two pages, then it's two pages. Mm-hmm. I think it's the great braveness of, the, of, of your writing that you are not afraid to stop. <laughs> I'm very glad to stop. <laughs> because a lot of writers, yeah. you know, you, 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 there's a security going on in a yeah, way. You yeah, know, I can but, understand but that, yes. the, the stopping yes. is it's another doing word. Mm-hmm. It's another mm-hmm. being. Aspect. I did a very short stint when I was younger as a radio, um, in radio, and you learn... As any radio producer will, mm. you learn where the out is. Mm. When somebody says yeah. something, and you think, that's it, we're out. Yeah. And, yeah. and when you hit that in your own writing, yeah. you're gone. Yeah. Yeah. That's Wonderful. a lovely moment. Yeah, It's a lovely moment for the reader as well, mm. because it leaves you hanging. Yeah. 
you need to be left hanging. I think we had another question over here. I've only read the beginning of your book, and uh, I was really interested in the whole stuff about Alaska. Um, in the early 90s, a friend of mine wrote a book called uh, Sacred Whale, Sacred Song, a guy called Tom Lowenstein. Don't know whether you... No, okay. No, I don't well, know. He's, he, you know the title he's a, you'd be interested, I think. Mm -hmm. But he's a, a poet who went uh, to Alaska to collect stories. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's a kind of anthropological, poetic thing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he had all sorts mm -hmm. of scrapes in this. But, but what reminded me of uh, him and his book uh, was this sort of sense of a loss of time, yours relating to... Well, OK, one of the stories he... which wasn't in the book, I don't think, was he was there on the first day that television broadcasts hit the community. And he said it just transformed the community. Mm -hmm. the, the bars were suddenly... Mm -hmm. or the bar was suddenly empty and people were spending their time indoors. Yeah. And um, and you're looking at it as sort of going... But, you know, climate change... and. Is, is creating this reaccess to the past, but of course it's a past that can't be really fully recaptured. Um, but, and I think another theme really that is coming out from what I'm hearing is this sort of sense, there's a sense of loss here, uh, that we can't go back. Um, and now it's sort of climate change that's driving those, those changes rather than before where it was sort of a cultural invasion or a cultural... We, we can't go back, but there was a lady in, in, in the Northern Isles, I asked her exactly that, would you go back to that... You know, she was talking about being brought up in a croft and, you know, with, the, with the cow and the tilly lamp. And I said to her, would you go back? And she said, absolutely not. Mm. You know? And I think that must be true for almost all of yeah. us. We wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. We're poised here. We don't know where we're going. We don't know how to negotiate our way into the future, but we know we wouldn't you know, go back either. But it's not to lose those stories, isn't it? That's the point, I suppose, is that what happens um, so much. And when I used the word contaminated, I was thinking about alcoholism. I was thinking about the missionaries in Alaska who really perverted yeah, damage, those, yeah. those stories and what they meant, you know. Could you say a little bit about your affinity for each other as writers? Because I came to you as a, through poetry and to you through Cape Cod. Oh, so to have you in the so. same conversation is mm. quite extraordinary for my, my bookshelf at home. But okay, I wanted yes. to know how, where your overlaps came. Did, well, we were down the stairs before we came up here, <laughs> having, a, having a very excited conversation about whales. Yeah. You know, and it got so loud and excited, I thought, they're going to be humans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think, you know, because of the, the whale sequence that opens findings, mm -hmm. isn't it, uh, which for me, I just suddenly realised here was someone who was looking at whales, not from, you know, to, to, again, how, how we've started mm -hmm. about, uh, subtracting the human from these things. The best time I've ever had with a whale <laughs> I'm not going to tell you um, but is actually watching them from the land uh -huh. where they come into the context which is the context which you see them in Cape Cod a lot, right whales, uh, humpback whales fin whales and you see them in the context of the land of the way people would have seen them uh -huh. I mean you know Inuits would not have had aqualung you know uh, scuba diving whatever and they wouldn't have David Attenborough, whatever. Kathleen's way of bearing witness, I think, you know, because there's a, a, an extended essay by John Fowles uh, called The Tree, which discusses how you write, how one can write about nature, and he denies mm. that one can write about mm. nature because it's, oh, it's only in the moment of bearing witness, mm -hmm. and there's no, that's it. 
there is no anything else becomes a kind of dilution or a, or a removal from that. I mean, I know when I've been with whales and experiencing whales, it's always it's very difficult to talk about it afterwards because you run out of superlatives. And uh, that's I think that's what tied me to you in a way. Your work is I just saw this real honesty, you know, uh, not. A, pretense of romanticizing anything no i don't do romantic what, what no. we were also almost talking about um was the fact that 15 years ago there was no shelf marked nature writing or natural yeah. writing you know there was mm. nothing neither nothing no you know and all of a sudden mm. we, we, you, you and i and several this just sort of happened at it's, once it's strange yeah and that you go into, into a bookshop it, like this and the front candy yeah and, and where do, and does it do any good is we have an affinity as writers. There's, yeah. there's, a, whole, you know, there's a team mm. of us. Mm. I don't know. Is it going to save the planet? Well, I, I know Mark Cocker has talked about it as being war reporting. You know. Yeah, yeah. That's why I really like your writing because it isn't. And I, I, th- th- this book is wonderful. How it led, we're talking about the circularity of time mm. and the way that comes here at this end bit. We're very much close to leading up to your reading, like reading <laughs> right. um, which it really reflects that, I think. Actually, could you mind, do, do, do you mind going that just last... Is that, I'll, do, I'll, do, I'll read a wee bit yeah, of the, yeah. the very last, yeah. not even an essay, it's just a couple of pages. Yeah. Like, um, the lady was asking about poetry, I think this is maybe where it's gone. This is called Voice of the Wood. So you've really gone and done it this time, you're lost in the wood, how did that happen? The crazed Scots pines camped all around and blaybreeze beneath and bracken shriveled because it's October and you stand hearing nothing, the non-sound of one leaf dropping to join its siblings on the ground. You stand still, behind each tree, more trees, above, glimpses of bone-white sky. You stand, the Scots pines arrange their great limbs with no heed of you. They are weighty but also like breath on a winter morning but it's not winter yet. Pines and also birches, cold yellows of flame. The young birches are fragile, as though the first wind would send all their leaves fainting at once, but there is no wind. How lost is lost? You're not lost. You followed your map. There's a path. There's always been a path through the woods. There's been a path since the dawn of time. The trees step aside to make one. It's a ghost trail, an animal trail, maybe for deer or badgers. But there are no animals. It's daytime. No wolves, for sure, and no bears. Concentrate. Green ferns in the groin of an oak. Green moss cloaking a stone. Voice of a crow. Voice of a chiding wren. A smear of rain too soft to possess a voice. Voice of the shrew, the black slug. Voice of the forest. Did you hear something move at the corner of your eye? Another leaf falling. You're not lost, just melodramatic. The path is at your feet, see? Now, carry on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's such a privilege to sit here. Um, I didn't... When I took this on, I think, I don't want to hear you reading for an hour. I want to hear you reading for a year. Uh, It's like, it's just so beautiful. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.